1: Well, hello there, my fellow wrong thinker, and welcome to the show. Oh, we have a lot to talk about. I hope your weekend went well. I want to start uh, with something really obvious, and that is I get the impression somebody wants us to be very, very afraid, and I don't know why this is. I mean, look, it's one thing for, for news outlets to be reporting on, okay, so here's, here's what's going on COVID-wise, but there always seems to be this tinge of fear. Be afraid! Ooh, you know sensationalism that that goes along with it. Case in point, uh, there was a story published on uh, Saint George News, and this is uh, this is a, a Southern Utah news source, and they're actually they're a fairly legit source. They've they've grown a lot in the last uh, what nine years or so that uh, they they carry most of the heavy lifting when it comes to news in Southern Utah. But they were talking about, oh look at this, the the um, ICU beds are at capacity at Dixie Regional Medical Center or whatever it's called. Now, I guess they don't call it Dixie anymore because being woke, that might be confused with something that supports slavery, but that's another story for another time. Nonetheless, they're talking about, uh, wow, these beds are at capacity, therefore they've had to open up more beds And man, that that kind of a headline would certainly lead one to believe that, oh my goodness, COVID is getting out of control. It's overwhelming the hospital. Remember the tents they had set up before that nobody used and they had to lay off medical personnel because there wasn't enough work for them? Not this time. This is it. My friend Brad Green is possessed with an unusually keen mind. And he quotes from the article, between 24 and 33 COVID patients at a time over the last four days with 284 total beds, 15 of those patients from out of the area, meaning Mesquite, Nevada, Northern Arizona, or Northern Utah. Now, the spokesperson for the hospital said, capacity issues are also exacerbated by the majority of those who are in the hospital for non-coronavirus ailments, and the concern is as the number of COVID-19 patients grow, the fewer beds will be available for non-COVID-19 patients. And here's Brad's observation. So, at peak COVID utilization, 33 out of 284 beds used for COVID patients. That's 11.6 percent of capacity. Now, granted, some will say, "Well, now is this ICU or not?" But, but again, there's the question: Is everybody in ICU there because they have some COVID-related crisis? See, that's not answered. His point is, seriously, are we this stupid? Fear sells newspaper. Fear sells compliance. He says, I'm not afraid of COVID. While I believe that it's real and that, like most other viruses, people die from it, he says, I'm not gullible enough to sacrifice my freedoms, sanity, and future for it. And he simply says, I dissent. And I see good for him, and I I wholeheartedly agree. Look, be cautious. You know, take the necessary precautions. Don't stand there like a little child waiting for somebody to tell you this is what you need to do. You must follow and obey my every command and I will make you safe. There's a very predictable pattern that takes place. When someone in authority says, this is very, very dangerous and will kill you unless you do exactly as I say. And then later on, you know, when you're still surviving, maybe you did what they said, maybe you didn't it is a sure thing that authority figure will say, see, I saved you. This is the pattern politicians follow. I'm submitting to you that maybe that's the pattern they're following right now. I mean, their their complaints are, well, you know, the reason this is happening is because we had rodeos going on and there was 5,000 people in attendance at these rodeos. and Yeah, what about the protests? That affect anything? Well, that's a totally different thing. Oh, yeah. Because right, at the rodeo, they weren't rioting or destroying property or going around intimidating people. Right, Therefore, there could be no threat from COVID. Sorry if I sound a little bit uh, agitated about this, but that's a double standard that I am just not buying. And I, I think it needs to be called out. So yeah, I'll say it again for the record. This is not about mitigating health risks. This is not about protecting you and protecting the most vulnerable. This is about control. And fear is a marvelous tool for affecting control over people. Don't fall for it. That doesn't mean be reckless. That doesn't mean, you know, don't wash your hands. And, you know, if you you feel safer wearing a mask, by all means, wear one. Just know you can't hide from a virus. You can hunker down in a cave somewhere and wait and wait and wait. But when you come out, that virus is still going to be out there you're still going to be exposed to it. And the truth that very few people want to face is all of us are going to get it at some point, just like the flu, just like the common cold. Now, hopefully, we're doing what we can to bolster our immune systems, to bolster our overall, our overall health and remove those factors that can you know detract from our health, whether that's uh, being obese, whether it's high blood pressure or heart disease or diabetes, whatever. But you're not going to hide from a virus. And the virus is not going to respond to this public policy or that public policy. All right. I'm ready to dive into a couple other topics here. But I just, I had to get that off my chest. To the news outlets out there, <clears throat> stop with the fear. Just stop it. I know you want to get people to, to click on your stories. I know you want to get eyeballs on the screen viewing whatever it is you're, you're talking about. Stop trying to scare people. Stop trying to sensationalize things. And for heaven's sakes, stop cuddling up to state power like you're a part of it or that it's, that it's a blessing to you. I know you want to assure Master that you love him. Master doesn't care whether you love him or not. All he cares about is whether you obey him. That should tell you a little bit about Master's motivations. This seems like about as good a time as any to dive into some uh, discussion of critical thinking. Paul Rosenberg, who is one of my favorite writers, and I think has one of the most common sense and, and gentle approaches to the truth. This is what, to me, makes him such an effective communicator and and, and source of light. He doesn't beat it into you. And believe me, I'm trying to take lessons from him because I think I've been guilty of trying to beat truth into people before. So I try to follow uh, a lot of the recommendations, and I found great success in, in what he has recommended. Number one, you know, if, if you find yourself in a discussion with somebody, lose the need to win. Don't, don't feel like you got to win this argument on the Internet because somebody was wrong. Plant a seed. Show them a the truth and walk away. Let them come to it at their own pace and on their own terms. But a big part of that is going to involve critical thinking. And he has a, an essay that came out through, over the weekend. This one landed in my email inbox from his freemansperspective.com website. By the way, I would encourage you, visit his website, sign up for the weekly email, and you will, uh, you will join ranks with a lot of other freedom seekers who have uh, tapped into a really excellent source of uh, intellectual nourishment, philosophical nourishment. Paul Rosenberg says critical thinking is an essential human skill, but it is little taught. Once upon a time, critical thinking courses were held to be essential, but he says they vanished. They've since vanished from the schoolrooms, either rolled into optional logic courses, which are boring or deathly boring to most students, or they're pushed aside simply because teachers and administrators resented students tearing through their arguments. Boy, is that true. But he says, for whatever reasons, critical thinking has all but disappeared from modern education. Nonetheless, it remains essential, and especially for young students who need reasons to trust themselves and their opinions. He says, because of this, and because the parents of young children have asked me for it, he says he will be devoting a series of posts to the fallacies of logic. An understanding of the primary fallacies, and especially how to apply them, is central to critical thinking. Now, he comes right out and lets you know, this material will end up as a book, but he says, I'd very much like for you to read these installments and send them to the young people in your life. Children should be mentally and emotionally prepared to face a difficult and confusing world, and this is precisely the kind of material that will prepare them. And so he says, so this, our first installment, will cover just a few primary points, but he says, next week, we'll jump right into our first fallacy of logic, the either-or fallacy. Now, we've got to take a break, so I'm going to have to come back to this in a few moments. But I just want to stress, until you have a chance to read this for yourself, please don't close your mind and say, well, you know, great. He wants to tell the kids what to think. This is not about telling them what to think. This is helping them learn how to think, which is not the same thing as saying you must hold these ideas. It's more like this is how to calibrate your BS detector and tell whether what someone is, is uh, saying to you or trying to convince you of actually holds water or not okay we'll jump into this with both feet just the other side of these messages
0: this is the brian hyde show
1: This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to mention that our show is brought to you in part today by our friends at Jeff Staples Real Estate, Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse, and also the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I do appreciate these sponsors, and I hope that you will show them your appreciation by doing business with them if you need what they have to offer. So I'm sharing with you this article by Paul Rosenberg about critical thinking, And and an introduction to critical critical thinking. We will be following this as, as these land in my mailbox. I love this because Paul has a way of saying things simply, clearly, and he just gets right to the heart of the matter. So when it comes to discussing critical thinking, he starts with wrong and right. And he says, strangely enough, it's nearly always easier for us to prove what's wrong than to prove what's right. That's what modern science does, for example. It goes about to prove ideas wrong, and if it can, that idea can be discarded. Now, if the idea cannot be proven wrong, even after multiple sincere efforts, we accept it as likely correct. But he says, even so, we have no final proof of rightness, just the knowledge that we couldn't prove it wrong. So, in other words, probably right is the best science can do, but it's been quite enough. Paul Rosenberg says, So when we engage in critical thinking, we're looking for reasons why an argument is wrong. And if we can do that, we can disregard the argument, or at least that part of the argument. The danger of breaking arguments is that we take the practice too far and become critical only, enjoying the power of chopping people down and developing some very unlovely traits. So in order to avoid the dark fate of the unbalanced critic, we must remember that we're dealing with actual people, who deserve to have their feelings considered. Damaging someone with our critiques doesn't make us or them or the world better. We must allow people to make mistakes and to express themselves imperfectly. The larger picture should be considered before we leap into proving things wrong. And I love this analogy he uses. He says the critical thinker then should also be a benevolent thinker. A knife can be skillfully wielded either by a chef or by a killer. So let's all be chefs. Then he moves to the emotional base of critical thinking and says a great deal of manipulation, and especially public manipulation, uses emotional vulnerabilities. For example, humans are particularly vulnerable to conformity pressures. Everyone is doing something or believing something, which leads us to feel powerful pressure to conform. In fact, a psychologist by the name of Solomon Asch did controlled studies of conformity pressure back in the 1950s learning that in well-structured situations, in other words, all the actors were saying the same false thing, 75% of normal people would agree with an obvious lie, at least some of the time. So you can see the power of the conformity bias, and you've probably felt it yourself. He says, Conformity pressures obviously subvert our critical thinking skills, and they're not the only emotional pressures that do so. This means that using our critical thinking abilities in real life will require us to face and work through our emotional soft spots. And yes, he says, we all have them. So Paul Rosenberg says what he suggests is simply that you notice the emotional pressures you feel from fallacious arguments. Skillful manipulators do their best to set up overwhelming pressures, making them hard to stand against. And he says, when you feel such things, please take a step back. Then find a quiet moment to analyze what you felt. Doing that over time will allow you to work through the emotional tricks. Critical thinking then requires a strong soul, as much as it does a strong mind. In fact, the two go together. And if combined with benevolence, they will serve you well all of your life. By the way, just as a quick aside here, I love that he makes that connection. And I I want to make clear that This is one of the things that I feel is is central to the message that I'm trying to get across each time I step behind this microphone. I'm not trying to build the biggest audience in radio or podcast history. I mean, I'd be flattered if I did, but I don't think that the message that I have to share is something that the masses are necessarily seeking. But what I'm trying to do instead is to build the best quality audience. And by quality, I mean people with great souls. Strong souls, critical thinking skills, people who are anxious to be a source of light—not because it, you know, draws attention to them as someone who has all the answers, but because the world needs light—and it can be scary to be the one bringing that torch back into the cave, to use Plato's allegory of the cave, you know, to help people find their way to the to the real light. So, in a nutshell, there's my philosophy. Not looking for the biggest audience. I'm just trying to create what I hope will be a quality audience. People with good hearts, good souls, and the determination to to use whatever influence they have as wisely as possible. Back to Paul Rosenberg's article. He warns about fast talkers. He says, one last difficulty for critical thinking is the fast talker. People presenting thin or false arguments will often talk too rapidly for you to analyze their claims, and that could be a problem. Those who are skilled at manipulation will also push you to agree with them as they go, which is another emotional trick. If you nod your head and say yes several times, you'll be very slow to disagree, even with an openly false argument. Why? Because to do so, you'll have to admit that you were tricked into agreeing not only once, but several times. That is, you'll have to call yourself stupid, or at least silly before you can use your critical thinking skills. Most people fail that challenge unless they're prepared for it. He says what I'll recommend is this. If someone is going too fast for you to analyze their arguments, don't try to. Rather, get a written version of the argument and go over that. And if they try to make you agree with them, just don't. Reserve judgment. Say, I haven't heard enough to understand or or whatever. But he says, don't be led along by things you're unsure of. I almost hate to use this as an example, but as, as I'm reading this, I, I remember a certain multi-level marketing pitch that I was on the receiving end of maybe a little over a year ago. And I mean, I, I say this with the greatest love and respect for those involved because they, they really were just, just trying to uh, help me out and they saw, thought that, uh, wow, maybe this is something that uh, you should be a part of. But it was the classic fast talker scenario. The guy who was making the pitch <clears throat> was sitting there sketching out numbers on a pad and going so fast, going so fast. You see this, of course, yes, this is right. Of course, yes, this is right. And just pushing, pushing, pushing to agree with him. I recognized it for what it was. In fact, after he was about two minutes in, I recognized exactly which, you know, multi-level, you know, organization he was was working for. And I... Was a little bit sad when I saw his crestfallen face as I told him, I already belong to that. <laughs> and I did. I since have, have, uh, since have stepped away from my membership. But nonetheless, um, that, that was a perfect example of the fast talker. And, uh, and what Paul Rosenberg is saying here is absolutely right. Just tell him, I don't, uh, I don't necessarily agree with this. I haven't heard enough to, to really make up my mind. It's your mind. Anybody who would pressure you into, you know, jumping right into something, you know, without, without really thinking it out, is not working in your best interest. So don't be afraid to assert yourself. Paul has one final thought here. He says, next week we'll start on our first fallacy. He says, now you may want to wait, sending a few of the fallacies to the young person in your life, uh, before sending this introduction. He says, that'll be your call, of course, but especially for the younger children. He says, I think it would be better. <clears throat> I'm going to take him up on this, and I'm going to start with my own kids. They're pretty good critical thinkers anyway, in the sense that uh, they, they look for where are the flaws in this argument. And here's the beautiful thing. They're not contrarians. They're not just, you know, anytime somebody says something to them. If they're disagreeing, it's because they recognize, wait a minute, something here doesn't quite add up. And I will admit, it makes this papa's heart beat just a little bit prouder when one of my kids would come home from school and say, yeah, we were talking about this today, and this is a question that I had, meaning they didn't necessarily even disrupt the class, but they came home and said, this didn't seem to make sense, and in most cases, they were absolutely right. Their BS detector went off, and it was legit BS.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This
1: is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Let me just take a moment here and uh, let you know that uh, our program is brought to you each weekday at this time by the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Now, when it comes to purchasing a home, I think we can safely agree that's the big purchase. There's very few things that any of us will buy that uh, will, will be bigger in scale than our home. Or maybe our second home, if you're doing particularly well. Well, this is why I want to steer you toward my friend John Staples and his wife Heather, because they are the Staple-Turner's team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They have not only the experience and the work ethic to get the job done for you, but they also have a marvelous company in Patriot Home Mortgage, operating in 23 different states. There's a good chance that whatever state you happen to be in at this moment is a state where Patriot Home Mortgage can help you. Go to staplesmortgage.com, staplesmortgage.com. Whether you need a new home loan, just want to pre-qualify so you can go shopping for a new home, or want to refinance your existing mortgage, it's a good time to do so. Contact the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Let's get that ball rolling. So there was another article I came across over the weekend that uh, that really stood out to me. Um, I know that uh, right now things are building to a fever pitch, right? We're almost two weeks away from the election, and there's uh, there's a lot of argumentation on Facebook. I have to say, in some ways, it's not getting as strident, but out in the streets, yeah, it's it's kind of ugly. Personally, I think I would steer clear of anything that looks like a demonstration one way or the other just because... Um, it just seems like the, the trouble seems to be brewing in the streets, not so much uh, behind the keyboard. Now, if that seems like, well, gee, Brian, you don't want to get out there and get your teeth knocked out? Nah, not really. Nor do I want to go bash, you know, other people's heads either. I'm just, that's just not my thing. But hey, you do you. But as far as the conflict goes, it seems that systemic pride can almost always be found at the root of some of these uh, these points of friction that we're finding in society. Joseph Pierce has an excellent article I found on intellectualtakeout.org. I want to share some of the excerpts of this just because I, 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 see, I see some wisdom in what he has to say here. And I only share this from the standpoint of, uh, look, we can't stop other people from butting heads, but we can at the very least, when we engage with others, not bring that pride and that anger into the situation where there's already a lot of tension. He says, We live in strange times in which we become obsessed with race, to such a degree that skin color has become the determinant of all moral rectitude. If we were fortunate enough to be born with white skin, we are guilty of privilege, which is systemically racist. If we were unfortunate enough to be born with black skin, we are cursed with underprivilege, which is also systemically racist. Joseph Pierce says, "...racism is no longer about disliking other people because of the color of their skin, which was something of which white people and black people could both be guilty. It's now something that is only applicable to white people, and not to some white people, but to all white people for no other reason than their skin pigmentation." According to the older definition of racism, which is blaming someone for something that is beyond their control and therefore not their fault, like the skin color inherited genetically at conception, this new understanding of racism is actually racist. This is the crazy Orwellian world of doublethink and new-speak in which we now find ourselves. He says, in order to expose the nonsense of this latest Marxist spin on historical determinism, let's take a look at history itself. He says, the reason that Europeans exploited the people of Africa was because they had the tools with which to do so. They had the weapons, the means of transport, and other technological advantages which empowered them, enabling them to do what they wanted for reasons of personal gain with those who did not possess such technology. If the people of Africa had developed these tools before the uh, Europeans, the people of Africa would no doubt have taken advantage of their empowerment to dominate and domineer the people of Europe. It is therefore nothing to do with skin color and everything to do with the systemic pride which is present in all human beings irrespective of race. Unless this systemic pride is tempered by a culture which values humility, it will run riot and will ride roughshod over the weakest or the most vulnerable members of society. Only a culture informed by pride-despising theology and philosophy can keep the destructive and deadly power of pride under some sort of control, even though its presence can never be eradicated because it is part of the brokenness of who we are as human beings, Okay, pause for a moment, and let's let's break that down. Does that sting your pride to hear that? <laughs> Pun intended. Because I kind of, I, I have to admit, when I read that, I was like, whoa, man, he's being kind of harsh, or at least direct here. But after going back over it, after thinking about it, I think Joseph Pierce is right. And I think that was one of the greatest Differences between the founding generation and our current generation. The founding generation had humility. They prized humility. Why else would they have, uh, you know, taken a knee and, you know, basically asked God or prayed to the sovereign of the universe, as they called it, to, uh, to help them, to, to protect them, to direct them in their quest for independence. We don't see that today. And in fact, we see a lot of uh, deadly and destructive power of pride uh, wreaking havoc. I mean, for crying out loud, look, I I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but um, there are people who will literally beat you into a cripple because they felt, quote, disrespected. You looked at me when we were sitting on the subway car. That's a form of disrespect. And I have no choice but to come over there and beat the stuffing out of you. I wish I was exaggerating. But this is reality. There are people who feel that way. Many of the folks who are out rioting in the streets right now. Pride is what drives it. If only there was some kind of a maxim about something, something goeth before a fall. I I can't remember what it is, but you get the point. Joseph Pierce says if it's all about self-empowerment and doing our own thing and not about self-sacrifice and doing what we should, then he says we will always have a system in which the strongest using the tools of technology will impose themselves on those who are weaker than they are. It's not about love, but about power. And we should expect nothing but the unjust rule of the most powerful and the enslavement and subjugation of everyone else. He says this systemic pride is the driving force behind the exploitation of the poorest nations of the world, especially the nations of Africa, by the forces of globalism. It is global corporations and global financial and political entities that are the new imperialists exploiting the weakest so they can empower themselves. If it's all about the triune God of pride, the me, myself, and I, those with power will exploit those who are powerless. By the way, if you've never read, um, what is his name? Is it John Perkins? Confessions of an Economic Hitman? I had a chance to interview this guy a couple of years ago. Wow. Yeah. What's being described here in Joseph, P- Joseph Pierce's uh, opinion piece is dead on. These countries with, uh, with very little means but rich in natural resources find themselves in a form of slavery, economic slavery, by global corporations and financial and political elites who come in there with the promise, yeah, we're going to help you. We'll build dams. We'll build infrastructure. We'll do this. And then when that uh, nation has trouble paying back the loans that were taken out to to create this infrastructure, they're told, well, then uh, I guess in return, we'll just have to take control of these natural resources. There it is. They become a colony of sorts. Joseph Pierce says, what has any of this to do with race? He said, it is systemic pride, not systemic racism, which is at the heart of the problem. Having exposed the fundamental error of neo-Marxist radicalizing or racializing of historical determinism, let's see what side the Marxists are on with respect to the real struggle between systemic pride and the weakest and poorest people of the world. He says, the answer is the Marxists advocate pride, which is why they are so full of hatred. They don't believe in loving their neighbors but in destroying their enemies. They insist that without justice there will be no peace, but they forget that there will be no justice without love. It is sacrificing ourselves for others which heals the wounds inflicted by the selfishness of pride. The way to obtain justice is not to destroy peace until we get it. No justice, no peace! But to love our neighbors and our enemies. No love, no justice. Love is the prerequisite for peace and justice. Without it, we have nothing but the systemic pride which rules the world with the spirit of might is right. Dang. That is some spot-on observation right there. He says, A society which advocates virtue and makes war on vice and the viciousness with which its consequence, and which is its consequence, rather, will be better and more just than a society that despises virtue and advocates vice. The former is a civilization of love, The latter is of systemic pride. And the war between these two visions of the future is the only one worth fighting.
0: This is the Brian Hyde show
1: all right welcome back to the show I hope you are finding value in some of the uh, things I'm sharing with you today again I'll remind you you can access these at the show notes which you will find at the com. while you're there may I ask you to please consider subscribing to the podcast just uh, yeah seriously click on the uh, subscribe button and then you'll always be notified the moment that a new episode is posted you can also, Consider, if you will, becoming a wrongthinker patron. I have a number of wonderful supporters who sometimes for a dollar a month, five dollars a month, ten dollars a month, are willing to, uh, to back this program and help support me financially. And I appreciate each and every dollar that they send my way. These are treated as sacred funds which are used for the purpose of promoting that message of liberty, personal conscience, free markets, private property, and every little bit helps. So thank you in advance for those who, who choose to help out. Let's talk for a moment about uh, the censorship on Twitter and Facebook. This has been a very interesting thing uh, to watch with, uh, with the Joe Biden you know, story that broke in the New York Post last week. By the way, I've spent a lot less time talking about you know, the particulars of that story. It's really not that interesting to me. Look, a politician stands c- accused of corruption. Oh, gasp. Wow. Who would have thought? That stuff just never happens. No, it happens enough that it's, it's not even that big of a story. However, the suppression of that story by Facebook and by Twitter, whew, that is, uh, that's becoming a major, major development. And, in fact, it's harming Joe Biden worse than the actual allegations of corruption. People are angrier over the fact that, uh, that Twitter and Facebook are, are closing the wagons or circling the wagons around Biden in an effort to protect him. But they're doing it by censoring. And I'm grateful to see that there are people who still have that sense of outrage. Hey, that's, that's not right. There's a terrific article from the Foundation for Economic Education. This is by Yale Osowski. I hope I'm saying his name right. How not to respond to alarming social media censorship. And I think this is a really timely warning, mainly because I see people being outraged. I see them saying, well, uh, look at this. we got to call these people in, to testify before Congress. Zuckerberg, what are you doing? Dorsey, what are you doing? Here's a caution as to why you do not want to run to government for a solution on this. Yale Osowski says, call it election interference, censorship, or simple editorializing, but he says Twitter and Facebook's throttling of several New York Post articles this week has drawn lots of criticism. The stories allege that Hunter Biden, former Vice President Joe Biden's son, introduced Ukrainian energy advisor Vadim Pozarsky to his father after receiving a cushy $50,000 a month board seat at the company Burisma. Now, other outlets have contested the report. He says, there is no question that the social networks in question made a bad call. Disabling the link on various platforms made even more people seek it out, creating a Streisand effect of mass proportions. But the content of the articles isn't really what matters. The reaction of the New York Post report reveals just how much pressure is put on social networks to perform roles far beyond what they were intended for. We want them to simultaneously police speech online, keep the networks free for open discussion, and be mindful of fake news that spreads rapidly. So it's important to understand why Facebook and Twitter felt they had to censor the story in the first place, and why all of us are actually to blame. For the last several years, campaigners, activists, and politicians have primed, primed us all to accept the Byzantine expectations and regulations put on social networks. From Netflix documentaries such as The Social Dilemma and The Great Hack to the criticisms of surveillance capitalism, many voices are calling for further regulation of social media networks. Some on the right smirk as Senator Josh Hawley pens legislation to repeal Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act or to ban infinite scrolling on social media apps. Meanwhile, some of the some on the left cheer as technology CEOs are dragged before congressional committees and castigated for quote allowing Trump to win in 2016. This week it was revealed that the New York State Department of Financial Services wants a dedicated regulator to oversee social media platforms. Other states will likely follow suit. But what we're all too loath to admit is that these firms do what any of us would do when under scrutiny. They pivot, They engage in damage control. They aim to please those with pitchforks outside their doors. It's the same whether it's Black Lives Matter or President Trump. Facebook has committed to ending all political advertising online, which he says hurts nonprofit advocacy groups like his. And Twitter already implemented a similar policy last year, lauded by political figures such as Hillary Clinton and Andrew Yang. Of course, when tech giants censor or delete stories that we perceive to advance or hurt our political team, we're all up in arms. But protecting a free and open Internet means not using punitive regulations or policies to hamstring social networks because of the scandal of the day. Internet policy remedies dreamt up in Washington, D.C. will almost always end up hurting those of us who don't have power or deep pockets. It harms the small business that use social networks for advertising. And it sets up more roadblocks for ordinary users who simply want to check in with friends and family. Big tech isn't powerful because it has money, but because it has delivered superior products. Those that have left platforms such as AOL, MySpace, and Yahoo in their wake. Social networks have evolved from places to connect and share information across borders to intellectual and political battlefields where we wage digital wars. Now, of course, there should be regulation in some respect, but it should be smart regulation that keeps platforms relatively free and open and provides incentives for future innovation. The powerful platforms of today can afford to comply with cumbersome rules, while new market entrants cannot. That means with every new proposal to roll back Section 230 protections or require quasi-governmental fact-checking functions around Election Day, we're depriving consumers of choice and entrepreneurs of the ability to innovate. Of course, targeted censorship of certain accounts or stories on social media networks is bad, but policy solutions dreamed up by technologically illiterate bureaucrats and power-hungry politicians would no doubt be even worse. This is from Yale Osowski, Director or Deputy Director of the Consumer Choice Center, a D.C.-based millennial activism group that advocates for greater consumer choice. That's some pretty wise stuff right there, too. Consider taking it to heart. Okay, one final story I wanted to share in this hour. Why even the childless should want school choice? We have all heard people complain. Why am I the one funding these schools? I don't even have kids, and yet I'm being forced to pay for it through my, what is it, your property taxes, other taxes? Depends on where you live. Listen to what Hannah Cox has to say in this article published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. She says, at a rally this week, President Donald J. Trump repeated his promise to ex- extend school choice to every child if reelected. Now, she says, I don't have or want kids. I'm not going to change my mind, even as a little girl. I barely liked being around other children. But while I don't intend to raise children of my own, she says, I think it's imperative that families with kids receive access to educational freedom. And for that reason, she says, Trump's promise made her excited. In fact, she says, I think school choice is the civil rights battle of our time and that everyone should rank it high on their list of important reforms. Now, Hannah Cox says, I grew up with school choice as do most middle class to wealthy families, but it came as a pr- at a price. She says her father, the first in his family to go to college, was working full time as a pastor and putting himself through a PhD program throughout her early childhood. Her mother, who had obtained her teaching degree in Alabama, decided to homeschool us after observing the sheer incompetence of many of her teaching peers. She says, both of my parents recognized the importance of a good education and its essential role in shaping future prosperity, and so they sacrificed for us. Now, she says, at the time, 1990, homeschooling wasn't even legal in all 50 states, nor was it cheap. She says, I often think about the financial burden this choice placed on my family. We essentially paid for school twice, first in taxes, then in homeschooling costs. Because my mother had to choose between our education and outside employment, she says my parents lost out on years of retirement income, savings toward our college tuitions, and access to things they wanted. Now, she says homeschooling is incredible. I got to spend my days with my parents and siblings. I was never bullied or forced to grow up too soon. I only did school for a few hours a day, and my curriculum was customized to meet my interests. I learned how to think instead of what to think. And all of this has provided me with a fantastic education, a healthy sense of self, and a lifelong love of learning. And she says research shows she's not alone in this experience. Studies are finding homeschoolers are more tolerant than their peers, enjoy closer relationships with their families, and academically outperform public school graduates. Now there's a lot more to this article. She's got some great quotes here from Carrie McDonald, who you'll often hear me quoting on this program. You can check out the article for yourself in its entirety in my show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. Check it out. If it hits the right nerve, feel free to share it within your circle of influence.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.